Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about atrial fibrillation. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com slash AF or in the cardiology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Let's start with some basic pathophysiology. Normally the sinoatrial node, which is found in the right atrium, produces organised electrical activity that coordinates the contraction of the atria in the heart. Atrial fibrillation is where the contraction of the atria is uncoordinated, rapid and irregular. And this is due to disorganised electrical activity that overrides the normal organised activity of the sinoatrial node. An ECG will show absence of P waves and this reflects the lack of coordinated atrial electrical activity. This disorganised electrical activity in the atria also leads to irregular conduction of electrical impulses to the ventricles and this results in irregularly irregular ventricular contractions, tachycardia which means a fast heart rate, heart failure due to poor filling of the ventricles during diastole when the heart is relaxed and an increased risk of stroke. When the activity of the atria is chaotic, there's a tendency for blood to collect in the atria and form blood clots. And these clots can become emboli and travel to the brain and block the cerebral arteries causing an ischemic stroke. And this is what causes the increased risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation. So how do patients with AF present? Well, patients are often asymptomatic and atrial fibrillation is incidentally picked up when attending the doctor or the nurse for other reasons. They can present with symptoms which can be palpitations, shortness of breath, syncope with dizziness or fainting, and symptoms of associated conditions such as stroke, sepsis or thyrotoxicosis. There are two differential diagnoses for an irregularly irregular pulse and these are atrial fibrillation and ventricular ectopics. And these can be distinguished using an ECG and an ECG should be performed on everybody who's got an irregularly irregular pulse. Ventricular ectopics disappear when the heart rate goes over a certain threshold. Therefore, regular heart rate during exercise suggests a diagnosis of ventricular ectopics rather than atrial fibrillation. So what are the AF signs on an ECG? There's three signs you need to remember. Absent P waves, a narrow QRS complex tachycardia, so a fast heart rate with a narrow QRS complex, and an irregularly irregular ventricular rhythm. We need to distinguish between valvular and non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Valvular atrial fibrillation is defined as patients with AF who have moderate or severe mitral stenosis or a mechanical heart valve. And the assumption is that the valvular pathology itself has led to the atrial fibrillation. AF without valve pathology or with other valve pathology such as mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis are classified as non-valvular AF. You need to remember the most common causes of AF and you can remember this with the mnemonic SMITH. Remembering that atrial fibrillation affects Miss Smith. S is for sepsis, M is for mitral valve pathology whether that's stenosis or regurgitation. I is for ischemic heart disease, T is for thyrotoxicosis, and H is for hypertension. Let's talk about the principles of treating atrial fibrillation. And these are based on the most recent NICE guidelines from 2014, 
and it's been adapted to make it easy for you to learn. But please read the full guidelines before you put this into practice on real patients. There are two principles to treating atrial fibrillation. The first is rate or rhythm control to get the heart rate or the heart rhythm under control. And the second is anticoagulation to prevent strokes. Firstly, we'll talk about rate control, comparing it to rhythm control. Normally, the function of the atria is to pump blood into the ventricles. In AF, the atrial contractions are not coordinated, so the ventricles have a hard time filling up, and they fill up by suction and gravity. This is considerably less efficient. The higher the heart rate, the less time is available for the ventricles to fill with blood, and this reduces the cardiac output and reduces the heart efficiency. The aim is to get the heart rate below 100 beats per minute to extend the time during the relaxation period of the heart or diastole when the ventricles can fill with blood. The NICE guidelines from 2014 suggest all patients with AF should have rate control as first line unless they fill the following criteria. There is a reversible cause for their atrial fibrillation. Their AF is of new onset within the last 48 hours. Their AF is causing heart failure, or they remain symptomatic despite being effectively rate controlled. The options for rate control are a beta blocker, which is the first line option, for example, bisoprolol or atenolol. The second line is a calcium channel blocker, for example, diltiazem, although this is not preferable if the patient's in heart failure. And the third line option is digoxin, which is only appropriate in sedentary people, and it needs close monitoring as there's a risk of toxicity. Next, let's talk about rhythm control. And like we said before, rhythm control can be offered to patients where there's a reversible cause of their AF. Their AF is of new onset in the last 48 hours. Their AF is causing heart failure, or if they remain symptomatic despite being effectively rate controlled. The aim of rhythm control is to return the patient to normal sinus rhythm, and this can be achieved through a single cardioversion event that puts the patient back into sinus rhythm, or it can be achieved with long-term medical rhythm control that sustains the normal rhythm. So firstly, let's talk about cardioversion. And remember, this is a single cardioversion event to put the patient from AF into sinus rhythm and you'd consider cardioversion in a candidate for rhythm control. And there's a choice between immediate cardioversion or delayed cardioversion. Immediate cardioversion is used if the AF has been present for less than 48 hours, or if the patient is severely hemodynamically unstable. Delayed cardioversion is used if the AF has been present for more than 48 hours and the patient is stable. In delayed cardioversion, the patient should be anticoagulated to thin the blood and prevent blood clots for a minimum of three weeks prior to cardioversion. And anticoagulation is essential because during the 48 hours prior to cardioversion, the patient may have developed a blood clot in the atria, and then if you revert them back to sinus rhythm, this carries a significant risk of mobilizing that blood clot and causing a stroke. While they're waiting for cardioversion, they should be rate-controlled to control their symptoms. Now there's two options for cardioversion, pharmacological cardioversion and electrical cardioversion. Pharmacological cardioversion involves giving medications to put the patient from AF back into normal sinus rhythm. 
And the NICE guidelines say that for pharmacological cardioversion, the first line is flecainide, with an alternative being amiodarone, which is the drug of choice in patients who have structural heart disease. Electrical cardioversion aims to rapidly shock the heart back into sinus rhythm. And this involves giving sedation or a general anaesthetic and then using a cardiac defibrillator machine to deliver controlled shocks in an attempt to restore the sinus rhythm. After the cardioversion event, you need long-term medical rhythm control. And the first line for this are beta blockers. Dronedarone is the second line for maintaining normal rhythm in patients who've had successful cardioversion. And amiodarone is useful in patients with heart failure or left ventricular dysfunction. Let's talk about paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Paroxysmal AF is where the AF comes and goes in episodes, usually not lasting more than 48 hours. Patients should still be anticoagulated based on their CHADS VAS score, which we'll talk about shortly. And they may be appropriate for a pill-in-the-pocket approach. And this is where they take a pill to terminate their atrial fibrillation only when they feel the symptoms of the AF starting. In order to be appropriate for a pill-in-the-pocket approach, they need to have infrequent episodes without any structural heart disease. And they need to be able to identify when they're in AF and understand when the treatment is appropriate. Flecainide is the usual treatment for a pill-in-the-pocket approach. And you need to avoid flecainide in atrial flutter as it can cause a one-to-one AV conduction resulting in significant tachycardia. So basically in atrial flutter, flecainide can cause direct conduction of electrical activity through the atrioventricular node to the ventricles, causing a ventricular contraction for every atrial contraction, and this will cause significant tachycardia. Next, let's talk about anticoagulation, which is the other fundamental principle in managing atrial fibrillation. As we said before, the uncontrolled and unorganized movement of the atria leads to blood stagnating in the left atrium, particularly in the atrial appendage. Eventually, this stagnated blood leads to a blood clot or a thrombus. This clot can then mobilize and become an embolus and travel with the blood, and it travels from the atria to the ventricle to the aorta and then up the carotid arteries to the brain and it can lodge in the cerebral arteries and cause an ischemic stroke. Anticoagulation acts to prevent coagulation, which is thrombus formation, and it does this by interfering with the clotting cascade. For perspective, without anticoagulation, patients with atrial fibrillation have around a 5% risk of stroke each year, depending on their CHADS VAS score. With anticoagulation, patients with AF have around a 1-2% risk of stroke each year, depending on their CHADS vascular. So anticoagulation reduces the risk of stroke by about two-thirds. Patients on anticoagulation have around a 3% risk of serious bleeds each year, depending on their HASBLED score. However, generally the bleeds are more reversible than strokes and have less long-term consequences. Let's talk about warfarin which is a type of anticoagulation. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist, and vitamin K is essential for the functioning of several clotting factors, and warfarin blocks vitamin K. It prolongs the prothrombin time, which is the time it takes for blood to clot. We measure INR, which is International Normalized Ratio, to assess how anticoagulated the patient is by the warfarin. 
The INR is a calculation of how the prothrombin time of the patient compares to the prothrombin time of a normal healthy adult. An INR of 1 indicates a normal prothrombin time. An INR of 2 indicates that the patient has a prothrombin time twice that of a normal healthy adult. So it takes twice as long for their blood to clot compared to a normal adult. Being started on warfarin is a reasonably large undertaking and it requires close monitoring of their INR and frequent dose adjustments to keep the INR in range. It's given once a day, usually at 6pm in hospital so that the INR can be obtained during the day prior to giving the dose. The target INR for AF is 2 to 3. Warfarin is affected by the cytochrome P450 system in the liver and this system is involved in the metabolism of warfarin. The INR will be affected by other drugs that influence the activity of the P450 system, and this includes many antibiotics. This means that when you're starting a new medication, the INR needs to be closely monitored and the warfarin dose needs to be adjusted accordingly. INR is also affected by many foods, particularly those that contain vitamin K, such as leafy green vegetables, and those that affect the P450 system, such as cranberry juice and alcohol. Warfarin has a half-life of one to three days, and it's also reversible with vitamin K in the event that the INR is very high or the patient experiences bleeding. Next, let's talk about novel anticoagulants, or NOACs, and these are drugs like apixaban, dabigatran, and rivaroxaban. NOACs are now often referred to as direct-acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs. They're currently on patent, which means that the drug companies that produce them can charge more money for them. For example, it costs £27 for a Pixaban versus £1 for warfarin per month supply. However, this is often offset by the cost of monitoring the warfarin and having appointments to check the INR. And additionally, they'll be coming off patent in the next few years, which means they'll become much cheaper at that point. Apixaban and dabigatran are taken twice daily, whereas rivaroxaban is only taken once a day. A common argument against the DOACs is that there's no way to reverse their effects if bleeding occurs. However, they carry a lower risk of bleeding and have a relatively short half-life. For example, DOACs have a half-life of 7 to 15 hours so they reverse themselves in a short space of time. Apixaban has a half-life of approximately 12 hours. The DOACs have a number of potential advantages over warfarin. No monitoring is required. There's no major interaction problems when you start or use other medications. They are equal or slightly better than warfarin at preventing strokes in atrial fibrillation. And they're equal or slightly better than warfarin in terms of their risk of bleeding. We need to talk about the CHADS VAS score, and this is a tool for assessing whether a patient with atrial fibrillation should be started on anticoagulation. It's essentially a list of risk factors, and if the patient has one or more of these risk factors, anticoagulation should be considered and started. The higher the score, the higher the risk of developing a stroke or a TIA, and the greater the benefit of anticoagulation. There's no role for aspirin to play in preventing strokes in atrial fibrillation. This used to be in the guidelines and used to be recommended, but it's no longer recommended. So to summarise the outcomes of the CHADVAS score, if they score 0, then no anticoagulation is required. If they score 1, 
then it's worth considering anticoagulation, and if they score more than one, then anticoagulation should be offered. The CHADS VAS score is essentially a mnemonic. C is for congestive heart failure, H is for hypertension, A2 is for age above 75, which scores 2, D is for diabetes, S2 is for stroke or TIA in the past, and this scores 2, V is for vascular disease, A is for age 65 to 74, and S is for sex, referring to females who are at higher risk. Finally, let's talk about the HASBLED score. And the HASBLED is an assessment tool for establishing a patient's risk of major bleeding while they're on anticoagulation. This can be used prior to initiating anticoagulation or as a monitoring tool in patients with a higher risk of bleeding to decide whether they should stop their anticoagulation. This is not as essential to know inside out as the CHADS VAS score, however it's useful to be aware that it's there if you think a patient may have a higher risk of bleeding so that you can calculate their risk and make a more informed decision. It's very useful in practice for comparing the risk of stroke to the risk of bleeding to help patients and doctors make a decision about whether or not to start anticoagulation. It's worth noting that usually the risk of stroke significantly outweighs the risk of bleeding. Also, most bleeding can be treated, whereas strokes often lead to significant long-term morbidity and a lower quality of life. The easiest way to calculate the Hasblood score is to use an online calculator that will provide you with a risk of bleeding based on the scores. The Hasblood score forms a mnemonic with H meaning hypertension, A meaning abnormal renal or liver function, S referring to stroke in the past, B referring to bleeding, L referring to labile INRs if the patient is on warfarin, and we're finding it difficult to get control of their INRs and to get the patient to stay in range. E is for elderly, and D is for drugs or alcohol. So thanks for listening to this episode on atrial fibrillation. A big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing the podcast. Why not head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Medicine book for all of the topics written clearly and concisely so that you can revise for your medical exams. You can also find the Zero to Finals Pediatrics book, which covers all the topics you need for your pediatrics exams. You can also find a full audiobook version of the Zero to Finals Medicine book on Audible, which is available to download, so you can take all of the audio topics with you wherever you go and listen from cover to cover or to individual chapters or topics. You can also find notes, videos, illustrations and questions completely free on the Zero to Finals website at zerodefinals.com and I hope you tune in to the next episode which will be on cardiac arrhythmias.